you know, I've been on my fair share of airplanes in my life, um, growing up as an Air Force brat and just some traveling as I've grown up. And um, I love flying in airplanes. Um, I've been in larger planes and smaller planes. And I think one of my favorite things to do, I was listening to a comedian one time talking, I don't remember who it was, so if it's not a com good comedian, you just have to forgive me there. But, uh, but this part was good and it was funny. But he's just talking about, you know, flying along uh, in an airplane and just people, you know, the things that people gripe about. Um, you know, and he's like, you know, you're at 40,000 feet in a chair. What do you have to complain about? Right? Nothing. You're comfortable. Yeah, but I digress. But anyway, right out of the gates too. But anyway, so uh, I love also being in smaller planes. Like I love the larger plane thing, but, but my brother-in-law is a pilot. And so I've gotten to ride with him sometimes as he's flown. And one of the things I enjoy about being in a smaller plane, like a twin prop or turbo or something like that, and get to sit right up front sometimes um, and just kind of see all the gauges and, and um, all the... Uh, all the instruments and whatnot. And so I enjoy seeing all of that. Of course, I don't know what most of it means. Um, I know if one of them starts spinning, that's really, really not good. Um, you know, if the blue's on the bottom, it's a problem usually. I don't know. But, but one thing I like is when you're at night in a smaller plane coming into an airport, um, you see these, um, these lights. You know, now pilots have uh, instrument, instrumental ways of knowing how to fly a plane if they can't see anything. Uh, but one of the most basic ones is the, the, the um, what's the word I'm looking for? The uh, approach lighting system. You know, uh, when they come, right, you can see the whole runway lit up. But if you're at a smaller airport, right, you maybe have like 12 lights. And, but one of the cool lighting systems that they have is the approach lighting system where you are, uh, the pilot is, you want to make sure you're straight on, right? It's always good to hit pavement. Uh, but also making sure that your speed is right and that your altitude is right. So you want to be descending at the right pace. And so you've got a set of a few lights in front of you. And these lights have these, um, uh, I'm, I'm whatever, lines, but what's the word I'm thinking of? Like shutters, basically, like shutters, right? Slats. Uh, and so depending on your height, your altitude, uh, you can see that light properly at the right pace and at the right location. As, as you get closer, it goes from three lights down to two lights uh, because of the way these shutters are. And then you get closer and it goes down to one light and then you touch down right after there, right? Well, there's an approach that we have through God's word that Paul talks to us today about uh, for how we come to the Lord in prayer. And we see this in Paul's prayer this morning. We're in the book of Ephesians, um, finishing chapter three this morning. Look at verses um, 20, uh, 14 through 21. And what I want to ask you to do this morning is this. We're going to read the text together this morning. Um, and so, but I want to ask you to engage with me as we read it this morning. Now, you don't have to read it out loud. You can whisper, read it from your seat if you want, or you can close your eyes. This is a prayer. And so I want to read the text, but I want to pray the text, right? Aside from the first uh, line, which we'll just read together, but, but read this with me. But, but beyond that, pray this with me for yourself and for one another as a church this morning. Paul says in Ephesians 3, 14 through 21, he says, for this reason. Remember, he said that back in verse 1. So he's really, and then the, he had that long parenthetical interruption, right? That, but I digress, we said last week. Um, for this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, that he may, and here's the content of the prayer, that he may grant you to be strengthened 
according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. And now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than we can ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Paul shows us a believer's posture right out of the gates here. The way that we approach the Lord and our posture in prayer is fueled by God's revelation of himself to us through his word. Sometimes we come to prayer with the burdens of our life weighing uh, more heavily in our minds. The fear of our circumstances weighing more heavily on our souls, or you might say your emotions, your heart, your, your inner being. And in the midst of writing in prison... Paul shows us that his, his approach to prayer, his bowing of his knee is fueled by the revelation of who God is about himself. And we act according to that revelation in faith, right? Notice, notice uh, what Paul shows us about prayer. I mean, he uses the phrase, I bow my knees, as a simple way of talking about prayer. But if he simply wanted to talk about prayer, he could just say, I pray for you which he does at other points. But here he's saying, I bow my knees. So he's telling us something about who he is, about how he should pray. And that should impact us as we think about our praying, right? There, there are many circumstances in our life. And like Paul, we don't know the outcome of any of them. Some of them we think we have a pretty good idea, but we're just running statistics at that point. At the end of the day, we're not God, we're not omniscient, and we don't know. There are things that we think about, things that we pray about, that don't concern us as much, but there are things that, that loom greatly in our belief system and in our hearts and in our minds. And, and often we worry about those things. Those things seem to have the, 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 the ruling power in our lives or the, the real estate of our minds and our hearts when we're not really trying to think about anything, but these things keep coming back to mind. But here's what we know. We have victory. The Lord knows the outcome. So we go, we cast all our anxieties, all our cares upon him. Why? Because he is the father who cares for us. Remember how Paul began this letter to this church that started in Ephesus and then floated around uh, some other churches in, in Asia Minor? He says, we are blessed in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places so that a few verses later we might live to the praise of the glory of his grace. Now brother and sister if we are thinking about all of the spiritual blessings in all of the heavenly places we have what we need. We have the victory. But what God is doing is using the details of our life, every detail of our life as we talked about last week to help us know him more personally so that we can worship him more fully as we live our lives. That's the joy of being a Christian. The joy is getting to be on display for a watching world to say, whatever happens in my life, I don't have to be in charge. Some of you control freaks are not very happy with me right now. 
We may not be certain of many things, but one thing we are sure of. And it's the most important thing. We not only know who God is, but through Jesus Christ, we know him personally. And when we come to the Lord in prayer, this, this isn't a passage that says you always have to bow your knee. You always have to get on your knees when you pray. No, actually in their custom, it was more common to stand. They would stand and, and they would stand and they might even raise their hands and look to the heavens and pray. And there's a time for that. And there's a time to, to bow your knees, to be on your knees. There's a time to prostrate yourself and just lay flat on the ground and say, God, I'm humbled by who you are. You are magnificent. And you made me from the dust. You are all glorious. And I humble myself before you. And so he says, for this reason, I bow my knees. For what reason? Well, for the fact that God is, he's already told us in chapter one, that God is uniting everything in Christ and that he has brought Jew and Gentile together in unity. There is no more reason for not having peace among believers. There's no reason whatsoever. Uh, he talks about this idea of, of bowing. It shows humility. It shows respect or honor uh, for the one to whom we bow before, right? In Acts 7, Paul uses a contrasting phrase when he's about ready to be uh, killed, uh, and he calls these, uh, these uh, Pharisees stiff-necked. These are, these are uh, men and women, boys and girls, who resist the Holy Spirit, right? It, it, sometimes we tell uh, children, uh, close your head, close your head. I want to see that. All right, bow your head, close your eyes, and fold your hands. Uh, but that's not particularly spiritual as much as we're just be like, don't touch anybody or hit anybody while we're praying. All right, let's see if we can get through this three minutes together. But imagine what it would be if you asked your child to bow their head and they said no. And you know, you're sitting next to them in the chair and so you, you, you know, you gently just, I'm not talking about smacking them in the back of the head. You, you, somebody needed to hear that, but, uh, you, uh, you just gently, right. You might just set your hand on their neck and say, you know, son, I want you to bow your head because we're going before the Lord in prayer and they might resist. You might just press a little bit harder and probably stop there. That's what it's like when the Lord would come to us and say, son or daughter, I want you to obey me. Well, you know, I think, I think the way that I'm thinking through this situation is better. Oh yeah, I get that, but I'm God. So let's just start there. And I want you to obey me. Why don't you humble yourself, humble your life, humble your heart, bow before me. A resistance to bow, a resistance to obey is to be stiff-necked. And Paul says, I'm not a stiff-necked follower of Christ. I'm praying, I'm simply praying, but I'm bowing my knee before the Lord. I bow myself. We bow our head, we bend our knees. As I said, we often lay even prostrate on the ground in order to show our Heavenly Father how wonderful He is and that we know that. And that we know that we're not. And so Paul bows his knees and he says, before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. He takes us all the way back to creation. God, when you made the world and, and you formed 
Adam out of dust and then you put him to sleep and you created a perfect helper for him out of his rib and you fashioned them from there. Every family on earth has been named. And you are calling people to yourself. And so we are thrust out of the realm of this immediate, I am the center of my world. Because if we're not careful, every one of us in this room thinks we're the center of this situation. We're the center of this problem. We're the center of this conflict. We're the center of this struggle. We want everything to resolve to our benefit. But he's saying, I'm not a respecter of persons, Jew and Gentile, rich and poor, male and female, young and old. Everyone who has been, uh, has even perceived legitimate reasons to be at odds with another person. And the point we saw a couple weeks ago, right, is, is that, that when one people group is calling another people group dogs, right, the, the greatest insults... The greatest uh, separations known to man, Jesus has broken down that wall, dividing wall of hostility. There ought to be no reason that somebody who names the name of Jesus Christ wouldn't be willing to bow their head, bow their hearts before the Lord, and be reconciled to one another or welcome another in. Why? Out of the great love which God has shown us. And God's whole great purpose of making his manifold or or, or many varied purposes known, his wisdom known to all of creation happens as he works through this family of God. This is our God to whom we pray. The one who deserves all praise, all honor, and all glory. Second, we see the believer's power for spiritual strength. The believer's power for spiritual strength. He says, according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you. Now, just think about this for a minute. Don't we often come to the Lord sort of demanding? Lord, I need you to do this. I'm naming it and claiming it, baby. Well, you might not call him baby, but you know, get the idea. Father, would you grant me Would you grant me? Would you grant one another? How do we pray for each other? Father, would you make them see my perspective? Father, would you? No. Father, would you grant them to be strengthened with your power? According to the riches of your grace? They don't deserve it. I know that because I don't deserve it. But you're good, you're kind, you're loving, and you love to dole out your grace to your children. So Lord, would you, according to the riches of your glory, grant them to be strengthened? According to means uh, that which is flowing out of, right? This is is the, 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 the nature and the character of who God is. Lord, according to who you are, you're everything wonderful to infinity. That's why I love the idea that that when we get to heaven, uh, I've said this before, in some ways there's a lot that we're going to understand quite quickly, but I think in some ways we're going to spend eternity knowing and loving and understanding the character and nature, the wonder and the beauty of God all the more. We get to worship as wonderful as, as our worship is when we come together as a people, but our worship is hindered by our own humanness, even by our own sin, by our own distractions, but we get to glory And it's all glory for all of eternity. And there are four realities that Paul talks about. He talks about that we would be strengthened according to the riches of God's glory. 
I already mentioned that that talks about uh, lavishly flowing out of who God is as our father who is giving good gifts to his children. He doesn't withhold anything good from us. That does not the same as saying he gives us everything we think would be good. No, he says, I know it's actually good for your sustenance. I know it's actually good to help you grow in the knowledge of me, how to trust me, how to walk with me. The second thing is that it's with God's power. The one who spoke the world into being, the one who who pulled dust out of the ground really is just a way of showing his power. It almost seems like it would be easier for just God to to, to speak us into creation, but he formed man from the dust of the ground. When God created the world, he created the world ex nihilo, which, which means from nothing he created the world. So he created the dust and then from the dust he formed man. According to that power. We don't serve an impotent God. We serve an omnipotent God, all-powerful God. So the challenge you're in the midst of right now, God has the power to grant you to endure, to heal, to walk in obedience when it doesn't make sense to you according to your human mind. The Lord says, you, you know intellectually, but now I want to teach you as your heart learns to trust me. Friend, that only happens as we walk in obedience. It doesn't happen in theory land. It happens as we specifically put into practice the truths of God. The fruit from spending time in the word comes not, not in one uh, sitting of reading God's word, but after days and, and, and weeks and months of being faithful to read God's word, little bits at a time, sometimes longer sections at a time. But as we continually saturate ourselves with God's word, this is God's very word, the most attacked book in the history of mankind, in the history of the world that God has preserved through the ages in order to demonstrate his love to us by giving us a revelation of him. That's powerful. That's powerful. And so we want to be strengthened with God's power according to his glory. You might translate that, that we would be strengthened according to his radiant power. Well, we all want that. But what's Paul doing? Well, he's praying for you and I. He's praying for you and me here. This is how we're to pray for one another as well. So you have a conflict in your life, you've got a a financial burden, you've got something that involves someone else, or maybe it's not a negative thing, but you know a brother or a sister or a friend or an unbeliever, and we say, Lord, I pray for them according to the riches of your grace, that you would strengthen them with your power. Well, how? Well, divine power comes to us through the Spirit of God. God sent his own son to live a perfect life so that he could die a death he didn't deserve as the spotless lamb in order to pay the penalty for Pastor Matt's sins. And let me tell you, there are three or four of them. A lot of sin in his heart. A lot of sin that's affected other people pretty rottenly. Not only did did, did, did God call believers to himself, he supplied the very means for their salvation to happen. But he didn't stop there. You see, he didn't save us and then just leave us 
to live according to our own power. No, he supplied the Savior for our salvation, and he supplied the Spirit to help us endure, to give us the ability to endure in this spiritual battle that is waging in the heavenly places. One commentator, Gordon Fee, rightly says, this passage also shows that uh, for, for Paul, the power of the Spirit is not only for more visible and extraordinary manifestations of God's presence, but also and especially for the empowering necessary to be his people in the world so as to be a true reflection of his own glory. You know, I, I remember growing up and uh, watching sports, and I love watching some of these athletes. And when I was a kid, I just wish I could have been this athlete or that athlete or had those skills or this instrumentalist that is just a great guitar player or a singer. And I would just think, oh man, to have that ability. Brother, sister, you have everything that you need in your soul through the spirit of God for life and godliness. Why? According to his power who has saved you. And he says, this is according to the spirit, which is at work in the inner man or the interior of our being, the seat of our personal awareness, our personal consciousness. You might call it spirit. You might call it soul. You might say in my heart, but he says here in your inner man, that's the heart. It's the the part of them, which is not accessible, but which is open to God's energizing spirit. It's where the engine of the car resides, but having an engine sitting in a car that doesn't have an ignition or doesn't have any fuel doesn't do you any good. You need all of these pieces working together in order to move that car or truck or tractor down the road. And God has given us his spirit in our inner being to energize us or to, 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 um, to animate us toward godliness. Now, let me have a candid moment with you. When we're suffering in a trial, none of us shines particularly brightly on our own. That's why when we see somebody struggling, when we see somebody suffering, and they walk in Christ's likeness, we're all sort of like, oh, wow, that's amazing. <laughs> why are we surprised by this? Well, that's just it. It's amazing. It's God's amazing, fully powerful love energizing the believers who walk in faith and not by sight, who fix their eyes on what is unseen because what is, un, what, because what is seen is temporary. What is unseen is eternal. When we live for the reality of our eternity, we are then enabled to walk in the spirit who gives us the love that we need to love one another. Paul prays in 2 Corinthians 2.15. He says, we are the, the aroma of Christ to God among all those who are being saved. Ask yourself if the way that you're living your Christian life is an aroma to those who don't know the gospel. Is, is, is it an aroma of beauty, a, 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 a wonderful smelling aroma to those who don't yet know the gospel? But here he says, we're an aroma to God. We're beautiful to the Lord. It's like offering a, a fragrant offering to the Lord, saying, Lord, I have no idea how this is going to go down, but I'm going to walk in faith. And honestly, just to myself, like it just feels stupid because this doesn't make sense to me but I'm going to walk in faith. And I would tell you, brother and sister, when you honor the Lord by walking in faith, even if you make the wrong decisions, God will use that. God will glorify your life. By wrong, I don't mean sinful. I mean, 
I've told you before about some of my seasons in life when I was in college and just really striving to follow the Lord. Well, I made a decision that wasn't, turned out not to be the Lord's uh, ultimate will for me in terms of what I was, what I was seeking, but I didn't miss a thing in it. I learned how to listen well to the Lord in that season. And the Lord brings that back to mind and says, you remember how this went? You remember how you just threw off everything? You said, I'm going to walk in faith and I'm going to trust the Lord here. God will bless you for it each and every time. But the blessing, the blessing is according to God's kingdom promises, not according to our own understanding of what blessing is. And so Jesus is faced with the same kinds of temptation. Jesus had the same spirit of God power at work in him as he suffered in the garden of Gethsemane. He didn't want to walk that path. And yet he said, not my will, but yours be done. What did he do? He walked in the power of the Lord. And he walked in faith. The Holy Spirit is the comforter, the one who comes alongside. He's our helper, the one who helps us in all things. And so he is praying that uh, when Paul prays that according to the riches of his glory, that God, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit. This is not a weak prayer. This is not a rote prayer. This is not, God, I thank you for everybody everywhere kind of a prayer. This is a very specific revelation of who God is and how God works in his people. And, and Paul says, God, I pray, Heavenly Father, I pray that according to all you are, you have the power, would you strengthen them with yourself? Would you strengthen them with yourself? This is about appropriating God's provision in Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit. He prays similarly in Colossians 1, 9 through 11. He says, and so from this day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking what? That you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. So as, why? To walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. God does not ever give us knowledge just to hang on a knowledge and stick it into the knowledge bank because knowledge puffs up, Paul says. He gives us knowledge so that we can walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. As you and I walk in obedience, as we walk in faith, we learn some aspects about who God is. We get, we get promoted from first, first grade spirituality or Christian to uh, second grade Christian and third grade Christian. But you know what? Not everybody gets promoted because not everybody puts into practice the things that God tells them to. So if you want to grow in your faith, it doesn't start simply by learning more. It starts by understanding how, who God is and how he's revealed himself to us in the word. And by by putting that into practice, putting your feet to the pavement, even or especially when it doesn't make sense, but you know that according to God's word, it's true. And so you walk in it. And we're strengthened with all power according to his glorious might. Why? For endurance and patience with joy. And so there's a temptation here as we think about our failures. We, we can do one of two things. The Lord is kind to make us aware of our sin. We don't think of it like that. We sometimes think of this God up in heaven is just waiting for us to screw up so that he can stomp on us, but that's not God's desire for us. God's desire is always to encourage, to build us up, to help us grow in our knowledge of him and our love for him. And so when he reminds us, when he makes us aware of our sin, one of our greatest first responses is like, 
should be just to say, God, thank you. I didn't even realize I was doing that. Or maybe you did. Because maybe you've been doing it for a while. Maybe you've been loving that part of life or, or, or that manner of trusting your own instincts over trusting the Lord and how the Lord says we're to live in the scriptures. But either way, the point is, God wants to, to help us grow. God wants to give us all that we need so that we can grow. And so when God reminds us or makes us aware of our sin, we say, thank you, God. And our first worship response is to repent. Repentance is a beautiful act of worship. It's a beautiful gift that says, Lord, I, the word worship com comes out of the, the, the idea of saying, Lord, I'm declaring the worth of who you are, the worship of God. And when we repent, we say, God, I declare that you are better than this sin. I declare that you are more glorious than my understanding of this situation. And so we have a temptation. We have a challenge. One challenge is, is to, um, to actually just set our mind to working harder according to our strength and according to our wisdom. But Paul's praying that, that we would understand according to the Spirit. And so rather than, than clinging to our own understanding, rather than stiff-arming the Spirit who is lovingly showing us our sin, we're to bow ourselves before the Father in heaven. And we're to humbly go to the Lord and acknowledge our sin and repent, which really means to bear fruit in keeping with the grief that we have over not living a life that's pleasing to the Lord. You see, if your repentance ever flows out of a sense of simply following the rules, or, or, or simply changing so that you can get something, if that get something is anything but God, then it's flowing out of the wrong purposes. It's flowing from a wrong heart. But, but, but if that repentance flows out of a realization for who God is and the fact that he has loved you, you're grieved because you don't want to sin. You say, oh God, I don't love this. I love you. And so flowing out of that, Lord, I want to I want to bear fruit. I want my actions to, 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 to keep consistent with turning from you. I'm sorry, turning from the sin, turning toward you, making a 180 from living for myself to living for the Lord, right? We, we all sin and we're all affected by the consequences of others as our sin affects others as well. And at each point, we are given the opportunity to appropriate the strength that is ours as promised by God through the Holy Spirit in our inner being. Christian, do you see all that God has for you in Christ? And here's the engine where this happened, right? The believer's abiding love. So in verse 17, he says, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. We've already said that the, the inner being represents our, our inner person, our minds, our feelings, the will, the whole person. Uh, and so uh, God already dwells in us, but this is a present continuous tense, meaning that he's indwelling us, producing the effect of an ongoing indwelling, empowering us and animating us to live in the spirit. And so as Christ dwells in us, as the Spirit of God, I should say, as the Spirit dwells in us, we dwell or we live or we abide in the love of God. And this happens, 
This is fueled by a knowledge of God which comes through his word. I want you to, these are not going to be on the screen. I'm going to hit them pretty quickly. But Joshua 1.8 says, the book of this book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do all according to all that is written in it, in it. For then you will make your way prosperous and then you will have good success. Psalm 1.2, but his delight is in the law of the Lord and on his law, he meditates day and night. It's delightful. It's delightful to meditate on the law of God. Psalm 77, 12, I will ponder, think about, contemplate all your work, and I will meditate on your mighty deeds. Psalm 119, 15, I will meditate on your precepts, and I will fix my eyes on your ways. Psalm 119, 48, I will lift up my hands toward your commandments, which I love, and I will meditate on all your statutes. Do you see the worshipful attitude in these verses, which is the overflow of hearts of love? toward the Lord for who he is and for all that he has done in Christ. And so he prays that you being rooted and grounded in love may have the strength to comprehend with the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of God. Paul uses a, a, a mixed metaphor here, rooted and grounded. Rooted, speaking about uh, you know, plant life and, and grounded thinking about uh, architectural structures and whatnot. Uh, and it's like saying, um, uh, we'll burn that bridge, right? That's a mixed, that, that's a mixed metaphor. We'll burn that bridge when we come by it, which, meaning uh, it kind of combines, we'll cross that bridge when we come to it and don't burn your bridges. But they've combined them together. Don't burn, you know, or we'll cross that, uh, we'll burn that bridge when we come to it. Some people will say sometimes. But here, it's not a contradictory mixed metaphor. It's a compounding mixed metaphor. In, in fact, what he's doing, he's adding strength to the argument that he's trying to make. What he's saying is that the first love is pictured as something that is nourishing and life-giving. And the second, it's, it's pictured as a, this love is pictured as a foundation upon which to build. So we build upon the foundation that's already been built, if you go back through the apostles and the prophets. And we build in such a way that the way that we live our life together as God's new home is life-giving. It's nourishing. We are compelled to love one another as God, through His Spirit, abides in us. Jesus said, a new commandment I give you, that you love one another even as I love you. And Peter wrote, since you have obedience to the truth, uh, in obedience to the truth, purified your souls for a sincere love. Brothers, fervently love one another from the heart. Fervently. Put a spiritual sweat into walking in faith, which is to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. That's a fruit of the Spirit. You see, as we abide in Christ, we receive and we live in such a way that gives evidence that the Spirit of God is at work within us. It's a matter of the will, not a matter of the feelings. It's a decision to act lovingly. It's a decision to act selflessly toward others. I'm pretty sure Jesus wasn't just feeling it when he said, greater love has no man than this, then he laid down his life for his friends. When Jesus was praying at Gethsemane, he wasn't feeling 
all the feels. In fact, he was grief-stricken, sweating drops of blood. And he loved for the glory of the Father. You and I are called to love for the glory of, the God, of God the Father. In the strength to comprehend 18 and 19, he says, with all the saints, what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. I love this concept, the idea that we can know something that is beyond our capacity to understand, right? We understand it in our minds, but we understand it more and more as we walk in faith. And so we grow in this knowledge and this understanding. Spurgeon the Prince of Preachers, Charles Spurgeon, preached a sermon one time called The Dearest Place on Earth. And he's talking about the church. Now, sometimes we think about the church, we think about conflict, or we think about those that, that we might struggle in. And so he's not saying, you know, do you like it here? Do you enjoy hanging out with your friends? No, we come here because there's something spiritual, something eternal, something bigger than all of us, grander than all of us. If you're not experiencing that, well, maybe you're not pursuing the Lord for that or walking in that. But is church the dearest place on earth to you? In other words, what we're saying is, is there any place that you would rather be doing life together with people that you would not necessarily uh, have much in common with, but finding that when you're together walking in the Spirit, you are knit together according to the riches of God's glory so that together and before all the saints who've gone before, the whole church, you are able to grasp the fullest, broadest, most magnificent dimensions of the revealed character and nature of God, the love of Jesus, which surpasses our ability to understand, and yet we understand it, and the wonder of uh, wonder of the incomparable power of the indwelling Holy Spirit so that you are filled with all the fullness of God. Do you love coming to church? Do you love seeing God at work in the church? Not just when we're gathered together in the building, but as we minister together out in the community or as you have church at home as a family, as you are being the church, we see the power of God at work. And this is the picture of the church that God paints all throughout the New Testament. That God's people, a people that God is saving unto himself, pursue personal holiness out of a love for God because they have been enraptured or taken up or, or, or enthralled by the love of God. And we say, I am so taken by the love of God that I want to love in that way toward others. I want to walk in this love because I get to be a vessel of the Lord's mercy. I get to be a vessel of God's love. I get to help translate what it means to have a relationship with God to someone else who, who may have never read the Bible. Or maybe they've read the Bible, but they don't understand it. Or maybe they've had a bad experience with church and they're never going to go back to church again. And I get to go to them. We get to go to them and show the fullness of God's love as fit vessels overflowing with the love of God. And then he says, all of this praise, yeah, it doesn't come to me. It all goes to the Lord. And, and as Paul often does, he just swells with praise and thanksgiving. And he says, now to him, this doxology, to him who's able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think. Remember, we've already been thinking that he's blowing our minds with the way that God chooses to work in us and through us when we walk in faith, when we appropriate the power. And so then God says, now to him who is able to do far more abundantly. He's just not, he's just, not just tipping the scale barely. I mean, the scale drops according to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think according to his power at work within us. Be 
glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Do you want to be a fit vessel for the Lord? I would say that if you're a a professing believer in Christ and you don't want to be a fit vessel filled to all the fullness of God, you may not be a believer. You might have prayed a prayer or or you might be um, hardened in your heart or or, or stilling, uh, stiff-arming the voice of the Spirit of God so that you're not desiring what He wants anymore. That happens to us when we persist in a sin that God is calling us out of and we refuse and we refuse and we refuse. We We grieve the Spirit. And God has said, today, today is another day for repentance. Today is another day to come to the Lord for the very first time. As we come to worship the Lord in communion, participating in in what we call the Lord's Supper, what Jesus has given to us to do continually until he returns. Remember that prayer involves all of us right? Paul starts by talking about posture and prayer. And so as the worship team comes in a few moments and, and leads us in a song of, of response and worship, and as we go to, to either of these four corners to uh, take of communion, you, you may want to stand and you may want to lift your hands in praise to the Lord. You, you may want to sit with your Bible open or your Bible app open and just contemplate what we've been reading this morning. You, you, you may want to get on your knees. Maybe you, if you're able, maybe you get on your knees and you, and you kneel at your chair. You might even want to prostrate yourself on the ground, bow your whole self before the Lord and say, God, you are great and mighty and I am not. I am low and measly, but I'm, I'm valued because you made me and you made me for your glory, which I don't understand. But I want to make myself low in life. But we're remembering that God is, I mean, Paul is praying this prayer for all of us. And so we're a community of faith. You may want to gather with a few brothers and sisters and say, hey, can we pray for Oak Grove Church today? Maybe not over any particular issue or any particular problem, but but maybe we just want to pray that God would use us miraculously. Because we're not that wonderful. He is. That God would use us miraculously to help us reach our community, our state, and the world. If you're not a Christian, or if you're not sure, I'm going to be right down here. I just want to invite you to come tap me on the shoulder. It'll be a divine appointment, right? It's not on my calendar, but it might be on the Lord's, and I'd love nothing more. You're not going to be interrupting me. It'll be a wonderful conversation that I'd love to just be able to have with you and talk with you and, and share with you the love of God that he has shown us in his son, Jesus Christ. Because God tells us that salvation is only through And it'd be a shame for you to come and hear all of this and then leave with nothing changed. So it's an invitation. Heavenly Father, we praise you for who you are, all of the magnificence of who you are, the fact that your character is far beyond us, the fact that you are, you're right and true in everything that you have ever done. And we fall so short And so, Lord, we lift up our eyes to you and simply say, God, you are the one who's to be lifted up. You're the one to be placed on the top shelf every time. And we want to live in such a way that people don't see others who think that they're great, but 
but we worship and we live in community with a God who is great, majestic, holy, righteous, and pure. And you have been so kind to us in Christ. And so we ask you, Lord, to fill us with the fullness of who you are. We want nothing less. And so we lay ourselves before you, empty vessels that we want to ask you to pour your love into continually so that we can, out of the overflow of our relationship with you, can pour into the lives of others. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.